0: Well, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 23. We're continuing our, our way through the book of Exodus. Today we're going to be looking at verses 10 and 19. And that's page 64, and the Bible's provided if you want to follow along there. Well, for much of the past year, our nation's attention has been focused on the COVID 19 pandemic. And rightly so, it's disrupted nearly every aspect of life as we know it. And yet there's another epidemic that's been plaguing us, has been present, has been wreaking havoc for decades now, and it's our inability to rest from our work. America has been described as a nation of workaholics. You know, many companies provide paid time off, and we don't take it. At least not all of it. Um, a study done a few years ago found that 47% of American workers did not take all of their provided vacation in the previous year, and it's given rise to a, a new name for our country: the the No Vacation Nation. And you know there are, there are a number of reasons for why we're reluctant to stop. And take a break you know there's a there's a cultural stigma associated with rest it's viewed as as lazy or maybe a, an admission of weakness, and God forbid that we ever admit that we are weak um, for many workers, and this may be where you're at, taking a vacation just makes work um, all the more stressful. You know you go away for a week, maybe two, and you come back to a long list of unfinished tasks uh, there's Looming deadlines, you know, an inbox full of urgent emails that you need to reply to, um, a boss who's unhappy that you went away and makes you feel guilty for it. And of course, even when we're physically absent from the workplace, uh, we're, we're just a text message or a push notification away, right? You really can't disconnect, and let me say real quick that work is not a bad thing. It is one of God's good gifts. But like all of God's gifts, it can be abused. God did not intend human beings to work without stopping. He didn't intend for, a, for work to be our only focus or even the central focus of our lives. He designed us to live in a rhythm of work and rest. Work and and rest and you see that you look back at, at Genesis the opening chapters and we see God creating the world for 6 days resting on the 7th and then when he gives Israel the 10 commandments the 4th commandment the sabbath commandment is about rest he he's intending us to to be for our lives to be patterned after that that his work of creation then rest and what happens when we ignore that rhythm You know, what happens when our lives look like work, 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 work? You know, all kinds of things. Exhaustion sets in. uh, Physical and emotional fatigue. It's difficult to concentrate. We become more cynical, less hopeful, um, less happy, less excited about life. It negatively affects your health. You know, I, I have a friend who rarely ever takes a day off. He thinks he doesn't need it, and yet he, you know, he's always on the go, and yet he, always, he ends up in the emergency room with significant health issues more than anybody else I know. Let me ask you this morning, are you tired? Are you feeling a little burned out? Does it seem like there's just a, a gray cloud hanging over you all the time? Well, there's good news In Exodus 23 this morning, we're going to see here in this passage that God gives his people the okay to take a break. That God gives them permission to catch their breath, to rest and recharge and celebrate. So we're nearing the end of an important section we've been in for several weeks now, the Covenant Code. God has rescued and redeemed Israel from Egypt He's entered into a, a covenant relationship with them, graciously condescended to them. And now he's, he's given them his Torah, his covenant instruction about how to live as his people. And, and today we're looking at two groups of laws that God gave Israel. Um, laws about the Sabbath and laws about their annual festivals. And, and let me say before I read the passage, we tend to look at laws like these as just a a burden. God must want his people to be miserable. That's why he gives them these things. Well, we're going to see that that these are God's gifts to Israel, that, that they're intended to promote human flourishing. And So let's read the passage. I'll read it for you. Exodus 23, beginning in verse 10. This is God's word. For six years you shall sow your land and gather in its yield, but the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie fallow, that the poor of your people may eat, and what they leave the beasts of the field may eat. You shall do likewise with your vineyard and with your olive orchard. Six days you shall do your work, but on the seventh day you shall rest, that your ox and your donkey may have rest, and the son of your servant woman and the alien may be refreshed. Pay attention to all that I have said to you, and make no mention of the names of other gods, nor let it be heard on your lips. Three times in the year you shall keep a feast to me. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread, as I commanded you. You shall eat unleavened bread for seven days at the appointed time in the month of Abib, for in it you came out of Egypt. None shall appear before me empty-handed. You shall keep the feast of harvest, of the first fruits of your labor, of what you sow in the field. You shall keep the feast of ingathering at the end of the year, when you gather in from the field the fruit of your labor. Three times in the year shall all your males appear before before the Lord God. You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with anything leavened, or let the fat of my feast remain until the morning. The best of the first fruits of your ground you shall bring into the house of the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. We will talk about that. Let's pray and ask for God's help. Our God and Father, we, we need your help this morning as we look at these uh, commands and laws and regulations about Israel's life. We pray that you would help us to see big, the bigger picture, that you would help us to see the, the gifts that you want to give to your people. Would you help us to receive your gifts this morning? We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, in this passage, we see God gives His people the gift of time. And, and I want to look at three aspects of that with you this morning. First, that God gives His people time to rest. Second, that He gives His, time, his people time to feast. And then third, He gives His people time to hope. So, rest, feast, hope. Alright, first, God gives His people time to rest. And in those opening verses, verses 10 to 12, God gives two laws about Sabbath rest. And if you look down at at verse 12, uh, we see laws related to the weekly Sabbath. Not the first time we've seen this in Exodus. God says, do your work for six days and then rest on the seventh. And the the Hebrew word that's translated rest there is Shabbat. And we get get our word Sabbath from the noun form. And it, it really just means stop. Cease what you're doing. Rest. Work six days. Stop on the seventh. The Sabbath, as God intended for Israel, is a a day to take a break from ordinary work-a-day labor. Unlike Pharaoh, and you think about this, Israel and Pharaoh, under the thumb of Pharaoh, Pharaoh gave no breaks. (laughs) It was work. It was do more. uh, Hustle. Keep going. Pharaoh worked the Israelites to death. But God, the, the, the Lord, gives them rest. One whole day, every week, take a break. And you'll see there in verse 12, it, it applies to the entire household. The, the men, the women, the children, the servants, the sojourners, or aliens. The, even the work animals are, are given rest. And then if you look back up, verses 10 and 11, the Sabbath year. And it's patterned after that weekly Sabbath. So that that pattern: six six days of work, one day of rest. Well, here God says, cultivate the land, harvest it for six years, and then in the seventh year, let it go. Give it rest. Give the land rest. And and you know, there's all kinds of questions here. Did they? Did the Israelites let the entire you know all the fields, all the orchards, all the vineyards every seventh year? Did they just let them them be? Or did they rotate which fields were left unused? It's difficult to be sure. But clearly God's intent here is that there's a break. A break from farming every seventh year. And in part, we see there, so that the landless poor could gather food from what the land produced by itself. And even so, the wild animals could eat. You see again, God's concern for all of his creatures, human and not. Well, why does God give his people time to rest? You know, as I said a moment ago, we tend to focus on the prohibition. God is limiting us. He wants to to take away our fun. But really, there are positive reasons for this. And just as an aside, quickly, I'm not going to talk today about whether the fourth commandment, the Sabbath commandment, is still binding on Christians and how The Jewish Sabbath relates to Sunday, the Lord's Day. We dealt with that when we went through the Ten Commandments, and so you can go back and listen to a sermon from June 2020 if you want to hear more about that. Today I want to talk more generally as we look at these commands about Sabbath. I want to talk more generally about God's gift of rest. You know, why does God give his human creatures permission to rest? And the first reason is your body needs it. You look at the end of verse 12. God says to rest so that you may be refreshed. So that you may be refreshed. This is the, weekly, the reason for the weekly stopping. Or at least the reason that this passage focuses on. It, it could be translated so that they may catch their breath. And, and that's really what you need, right? After a long work week, even if you don't do physical labor, uh, you need to slow down, catch your breath. We are physical creatures, not, not a newsflash, I know. We are finite creatures. And physically, we can't work 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. You know, After six days of digging ditches or hanging drywall, or producing financial reports, or chasing after a toddler, you're tired, right? You're exhausted. Muscles ache. Your back is sore. Decision fatigue sets in. The gas tank is empty. And that's okay. You know, creaturely limitations are nothing to be ashamed of. Don't feel bad for being tired at the end of the day. You know, I I think many of us do feel like, you know, I should be able to get more done. I should have more energy. I should be more productive. Why? It's 10 p.m. and I just feel like I've got nothing left. I I, I need to try harder. No, (laughs) that's not a bug. It's a feature. This is the way God has designed us. It's part of what it means to be human. God alone is self-sufficient. God alone never needs a rest. God alone never needs to sleep or take a vacation. You think about it, Jesus rested. Uh, He practiced this rhythm of work and rest. We we see in the Gospels, after he spent a day of preaching and healing, he would find a quiet place to rest and pray. Uh, One whole day a week, Jesus stopped and gathered with others to, to sing and pray and worship. At synagogue, Uh, when Jesus was weary, he got weary on a long foot journey. He stops and takes a break next to a well. Uh, Jesus invited his disciples at times to come away and rest. Jesus rested because he was human. You know, we tend to fight against our creatureliness. You know, we we tend to live and think and act like. This creational pattern of work and rest, it doesn't apply to me. And I mentioned earlier, you know, there's all kinds of negative impacts of living without rest. You know, it's associated with things like fatigue, uh, worn down immune system, increased levels of anger and irritability. And you, you know what those things are? They're like the little indicator lights on the the dash panel in your vehicle. You know, when that that red oil can lights up, it's not a good sign. Low oil pressure, and if you keep driving and just ignore it, eventually what's going to happen? The car engine's going to seize up, and you ain't going to be doing any more driving. Your vehicle needs regular maintenance to avoid those kinds of problems, and the same is true for us as, as physical embodied creatures. We, our bodies need regular rest. Work, rest. Work, rest. And God says here, rest so I can rejuvenate you. But your soul needs refreshment too. You know, we, we are not just embodied creatures, we are embodied souls. And, and this day of rest that God gives to Israel It's just as much about spiritual renewal as it is about physical rejuvenation. Uh, Israel's Sabbath was not just a time to to stop the work, but also it provided time to, to refocus, to reorient. You know, it was a little oasis from the rat race. You know, all week long, we're going, going, going. And, you know, there's meetings, there's phone calls, classes, long commutes, driving kids here and driving kids there, grocery shopping, paying bills, cleaning toilets, feeding the dog. Um, You can start to feel like you're just a machine. (laughs) And a day of rest provides a break from the routine. God says, stop. Stop. Set aside that, that ordinary workaday life, and it gives us time to delight in God and His world. You know, in Genesis, when we read about God creating for six days and then resting on the, sa- on the seventh, His creative work was finished, and He, in a sense, sits back and enjoys the fruit of His labor. And, and God's gift of rest is an invitation to do the same, to, to stop and to enjoy the, the world that God has created, to enjoy the, the God who has bound Himself to us by His grace, to, to feel the sun on your face, to take in the, the beauty of creation, to remember that there is a, a glorious Creator who has filled this world with things to dazzle us and, and things for us to enjoy. You know it's a time to enjoy the company of family and friends. It's a time to gather with God's people for worship and to remember we're we're more than machines. We are human beings created in the image of God, created to know and love and commune with God and we've been redeemed by Jesus Christ to do so. It's 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 a time to free up your mind and heart to focus on more than just earning a paycheck as if that were the ultimate goal of life. You know, it's the reminder that man does not live by bread alone. And so this, this gift of rest, it's an invitation to come to Christ and to receive the refreshment that He gives. He, we hear Him say in Matthew 11, come to Me all who labor and are heavy laden and I'll just pile more burden on you and make you miserable. No. <laughs> I will give you Rest. You know, another reason rest is good for the soul is it, it tells me that God's love is not based on my productivity. In a sense, that, that taking a break, that breaking the routine and, and resting, it's a picture of the Gospel. That, that God's love isn't a response to my work ethic. I, I stop for a time. All my frantic striving... And I sit back and remember that it's Christ's works, not mine, that have accomplished my salvation. And I remember that, that I, am, I am a receiver. I remember that God gives His grace to me. And I don't work for it. That, that Christ is my true rest. And so, you know, resting has all kinds of practical you know value, but it's a deeply theological issue. And our resting... Or lack of it. it, it tells a story. It tells a story about what we think about God. It tells a story about what we think about ourselves. And I, I want you to think for a minute: What story are you telling with with the patterns of your life, with the rhythms of your life? What story are you telling? You know, maybe you don't have this weekly rhythm of work and rest. Instead, it's just work. Well, that tells a story. It, it tells the story that God is a slave driver, that God is demanding, that God is always saying, "Do more." It might say that, that I think I have to keep the world spinning, that, that if I stop my work just for one day, or maybe even for a few hours, you know, everything in my life is going to going to blow up. Or it might say that I think my identity and worth and value are wrapped up. In what I, what I accomplish, you know, for you maybe it's this idea of being a super mom, or the having the the record sales figures for the quarter. You know, what if instead we really lived out of God's gift of rest? You know, what if we stopped for one day to remember and rejoice in His care for us, and to to remember that we are receivers of His goodness and His love and His grace, and to remember that God is the God who provides for his people. You know, what would that do to your heart? To have that break, to have that time to be refreshed. You know, not to mention what it would do for <laughs> your stress levels. You know, what if the pattern of our week demonstrated that all we have, all we are is a gift of God's grace? You know, and I realize that for some of you Uh, This is going to be especially challenging to start incorporating rest into your lives. You know, for you, maybe it's not that you don't want to rest, you just have to work so much to to make ends meet, and and that's a challenge. Or you're the parent of young children, and your children don't get the idea of Sabbath rest. (laughs) Or you care for an elderly parent, and it just seems like there's very little downtime. Well, uh, start somewhere. You know, what's one thing you could do, begin doing each week to start building in a pattern of rest? You know, maybe you don't check email for an entire day. That in itself would provide so much refreshment. Um, maybe you take a break from screens on Sundays and you just say, you know what, that device, it's out of my pocket, it's away, it's turned off. Um, maybe you take a walk for 30 minutes every Saturday morning just to enjoy the glory of creation. I, I want to encourage you to put yourself in a place where you can receive God's gift of rest. And so God gives his people time to rest. Second, He gives his people time to feast. We see this in the in the second part of the passage. in verse thirteen, there's a, a reminder about fidelity to the Lord's instructions. Pay careful attention to what I've told you, probably referring to everything so far. And then the Lord gives Israel three annual festivals to celebrate. And you can see them, they're named in verses 14 to 17. Three times in the year you shall keep a feast to me. Uh, First, verse 15, the feast of unleavened bread, a a week-long celebration in in early spring. Uh, Second, the feast of harvest also called the Feast of Weeks in other parts of Scripture because it comes seven weeks after Passover. It's also known as Pentecost, and it takes place late spring, early summer. And then the the third feast in verse 16, Feast of Ingathering, also known as the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles, which took place uh, another week-long celebration in the fall. And and there's a connection between the, the feasts mentioned in verses 14 to 17, and then those, what seem to us, very random instructions in verses 18 and 19. Those instructions there about sacrifices. It has to do with the sacrifices that would be offered at these festivals. And that, that last one, <laughs> you shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. It sounds entirely random to us. Uh, and it, it shows up a few other places in the Pentateuch. Um, obviously, it made sense to Israel, <laughs> and and scholars puzzle over what does this really mean. And I'm not going to bore you with all the details. But two options: one, it related, it was related to some pagan worship uh, ritual, and it, that's possible. You know, God could be telling His people, don't don't worship me the way that the pagans worship their false gods. That's possible. The the evidence that that was the case is is a bit lacking. Um, Second option is that it's a a humanitarian concern. There's just something cruel about mingling uh, the mother goat's life-giving milk with her offspring's slaughtered flesh. And and God's just saying it's not appropriate to mix life and death like that. Um, Whatever the case is, the details are really not that important for us other than realizing God's instructing His people about how He's to be worshipped. Now, it's really interesting when you think about it. Israel's whole year was divided by these big celebrations. And there's others that that are um, given in Leviticus 23, seven total. And the, the three named here, they all involved pilgrimage. So God says, you know, three times a year you shall appear before Me. And eventually that means in Jerusalem where the temple would be built. Three times a year, the the people of Israel make the trek to Jerusalem to appear, to come to God's house, uh, the place where He dwelt, at the temple. And uh, the text says here in verse 17, at the very least, a male representative from each family was required to make the journey. We know from other parts of Scripture that often groups of families would caravan together. And these were big events. You know, lots of people... Lots of children and, and lots of celebration. These were joyful times. These festivals were, were times uh, full of food, full of singing and, and celebration. Why? You know, why does God give His people time to feast? And, and two reasons. The first, to enjoy His gifts of food and drink. To enjoy His gifts... Of food and drink, and each of these festivals was tied to the agricultural calendar. Unleavened bread celebrated the beginning of the barley harvest. The harvest festival celebrated the end of the wheat harvest. In gathering uh, came at the the final, the end of the final harvest of the year, when the fruit and the grain would be gathered. These celebrations really were feasts, uh, elaborate affairs. You know, uh, an Israelite's daily diet didn't include a whole lot of meat. It just was not something they could afford. But at these feasts, there's an abundance of meat, you know, abundance of lamb and and wine was used throughout the the celebrations, in part because it was safer than the water, but also as a a symbol of God's blessing, a symbol of, of joy. And the tables at these feasts would be Full of food and drink, and it's it's tangible demonstrations of God's abundant provision for His people. The the people of Israel come together to celebrate the God who created them. The God who redeemed them is also the God who provides for them. Is is picture that that lavish table, and maybe you could picture you know one of your Thanksgiving celebrations or something like that. It, it's this picture of God's goodness that we can see with our eyes. His It's a picture of his desire to bless his people and, and the joy he takes in imparting joy and gladness to them. Psalm 36 says, How precious is your steadfast love, O God! The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. And then listen to this. They feast on the abundance of your house and you give them drink from the river of your delights. That's what the feast embodied. You know, have you ever thought about why does God give us food and drink? You know, certainly because we can't survive without them, not for very long at least. But even more than that, He wants us to enjoy them. He wants us to receive them as tokens of His kindness, as symbols of the kind of God He is. A God who gives good things to His creatures. A God who wants His people to smile and laugh and experience satisfaction. You know, why do you think God made food taste so good? I mean, He didn't have to do that, but to, to teach us something about Himself, to enjoy His gifts. Jesus did a lot of feasting. We, we looked at that a few months ago in our series on Meals with Jesus. It was a major part of His earthly ministry. You know, you think about Jesus fed the 5,000. Jesus turned the the water into wine at a wedding feast. And he's showing us what a, a relationship with God is like. It's a feast. He's showing us that the life of faith is about feeding on God's goodness and grace. Sometimes I think we try to be a little more spiritual than the Bible. And what I mean is we'll say things like, you know, Christians find their joy in heavenly things, not earthly things. And you know, I'm all for heavenly mindedness, but, but a proper heavenly mindset leads us to enjoy God's earthly gifts. Psalm 104 says that God gives bread and wine to men and women to what? Just to provide calories? No, to gladden their hearts. You know, at 1 Timothy, Paul warns about false teachers who forbid consuming certain types of food, who think it's more spiritual to abstain from certain foods. And, and Paul goes on to say that God's gifts of food and drink are to be received with gratitude. <laughs> that because God richly provides us with everything to enjoy, God provides steak. Sorry, vegetarians. God provides steak for us to enjoy because that's the kind of God He is. Now, don't go telling people the pastor said it's okay to be a glutton and a drunkard. Um, that's not enjoying God's gifts. That's abusing them. That's turning them into idols. Instead, God invites us to taste His goodness. To come and taste and see that the Lord is good as we enjoy the things He's given us. But not only does God give us time to feast so we can enjoy His gifts, but also to celebrate His grace. And so these three festivals are not only agricultural celebrations, each of them was tied to God's saving acts. They were commemorations of redemption. I, I won't spend a lot of time on this, but unleavened bread connected to the Passover. And it commemorated the fact that when God rescued Israel from Egypt, it was a hasty departure and they didn't have time to leaven their bread. The the Feast of Harvest or Firstfruits. It celebrated Israel's entrance into the Promised Land. God told them, when you come to the land and you and you harvest all the produce and all the, the blessing that I give you, um, celebrate it with this feast. So it's a, a, a commemoration of god 's promise, uh, the Feast of ingathering or tabernacles, commemorated the the period that we 've looked at already in in exodus, the the wandering in the wilderness. you know the, the people would spend seven days camping out in in little huts or, or tents, remembering god 's abiding presence and provision on the way to canaan and it 's really really amazing that that even the calendar God gave to Israel memorialized the story of His history with them. That every part of the year uh, reminded them of His grace, reminded them of His redemption. The the very rhythm of the months shaped their hearts and minds with the good news of God's salvation. And so God gives His people time to feast so that we can enjoy His gifts and celebrate His grace. Uh, That sounds a lot like the Lord's Supper, doesn't it? You know, God gave Israel many sacred feasts. He's given the church one, but we celebrate it every Sunday. And when we come to the table, when we come to this feast, we're reminded that our Creator and Redeemer lavishes His grace on us. That our Creator and Redeemer lavishes His gifts upon us. We we hold in our hands tokens, tangible tokens of His goodness and grace. We, we see them with our eyes. We, we smell them. We, we touch them. We taste God's goodness. And every Sunday, the story of God's grace in Christ is represented to us. Um, his, his saving love is put on visible display for us in the bread and cup and Christ invites us to the feast and he says brothers and sisters enjoy <laughs> feast on God's goodness and he calls us to eat and to drink and to be glad in all that he is for us and this week as i've been thinking about this i've wondered if there's even application here for for those informal gatherings for our our those times in our homes when we gather with our brothers and sisters in Christ for a meal, even the daily dinners, you know, holidays, getting together with friends. I think those times should be much more festive than they are. and if dinner you know if dinner is already a struggle with you because kids are spilling milk, nonstop, don't take this as the idea that you need to make a big affair. but what if what if we treated our meals? As more than a chance to consume calories, you know how many of you um, eat your lunch during the day while you're at your computer answering emails. I do it all the time. <laughs> what if we bit into that juicy steak and gave praise to the Maker of heaven and earth, who's given us such wonderful things? Uh, what if we looked around at the table, looked around at the faces gathered around the table, and and remembered that this is what Christ's coming kingdom is going to be like, a great banquet, a great feast. What, you know, Christians are often known for being grumpy people, uh, uptight people. Uh, some of that reputation's deserved, some of it's not. But Christians should be known for people who know how to feast because we worship a God who invites us to taste and to see His goodness. And so God gives us time to rest, He gives us time to feast, and then third, He gives us time to hope. Time to hope. Often for me, and it's probably true for you as well, that the work-a-day week tends to sap my hope. You know, it's the busyness, it's the overwhelming demands and responsibilities you know, you, you read the news each day and every day it's a fresh reminder that this world is, is broken, that it's a mess. Uh, hope begins to evaporate. You know, we have this uh, bird bath in our front yard and, and most of the day the heat of the sun just beats down on that bath and, and the water disappears. It evaporates and I have to refill it regularly. And I find the same is true with hope. Uh, resting and feasting replenish the well. They help us cultivate hope. And that's what Israel's Sabbaths and their feasts were. They were hope-building events. You think about the Sabbath. It looked back. It looked back at creation. It looked back at God's rescue of them from Israel. But it also looked forward. It looked forward to that eternal Sabbath, the eternal rest which God gives to His people. And now, if you think of Sabbath strictly in terms of doing nothing, you know, an eternal Sabbath is going to sound really boring. But Israel's Sabbath pointed to that day when the evil and the chaos that afflicts this world would be destroyed. That day when God's peace, His shalom, would would permeate the entire creation and our struggle against sin and our struggle against evil would be done. No more sickness, no more sorrow, no more death, and all of God's people living joyfully, actively, under God's rule and reign. The, the Sabbath pointed to the world as God intended it to be. The world as it will be one day. And, and I, I love how the Psalms picture that day. The, the earth itself will rejoice. The trees will sing for joy. The rivers will clap their hands in praise. see, the, the Sabbath pointed ahead to new creation. To the, the resurrection life of Christ animating all things. And when we follow that rhythm of work and rest, it helps us keep that future in view. You know, the, the little... Moments of rest that we get in this life are a foretaste of that day when we enter into the, the true and lasting peace and rest of God. The same was true for, for the feasts. Those, those yearly reminders of what God had done, they, they pointed back to what God had done for Israel, but it sustained their hope. You see, they, it helped them trust that the God who had acted in the past, the God who created them, the God who redeemed them, would come and act again for their good. That He would bring about a greater exodus. That He would bring about a new creation. And, and we see Paul says in Colossians 2 that those feasts and all those celebrations were shadows. But the substance was Christ. And, and God has acted. The new and better Moses has led us out of the Egypt of sin and slavery. And every Sunday as we celebrate the feast of the Lord's Supper, seeds of hope are being watered. You know, We hear week after week, as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. That, that last part, He's coming. He's coming. He's going to make all things new. And we eat. And drink in hope. You know, there are two different ways to feast, really two different attitudes you can bring to feasting. You know, the first way says, Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. It's cynical, it's nihilistic, it's really a lament of life's meaninglessness, and it's reveling to numb the pain of of hopelessness. And maybe for some of you, that's what feasting is all about. Uh, it's just uh, trying to occupy yourself until it's all over. And I want you to know there's a, there's a better feast in Christ. And there, there's a second way to feast. And it doesn't say, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. It's, let us eat and drink for one day we will rise. And that's a different kind of feasting. That that kind of feasting, the joy and the celebration of God's gifts, it's it's an expression of hope and confidence that every time we sit down together as brothers and sisters in Christ, whether that's at the Lord's table, which we'll do in a few moments, or or at the dining table at home, we're saying that evil and death will not have the last word. You see, we're saying that because Jesus rose from the dead, we can gather at this table and feast and celebrate. And, And no matter how dark Things get, no matter how awful the, the world is, we know that resurrection life has dawned and the darkness will not overcome it. We, we eat and drink in the hope that one day the glory of our risen King will fill this earth as the waters cover the sea. We, we eat and we drink because we're celebrating the great glad joy that is to come in Christ. I, I came across that phrase this week, the great glad joy to come, and it's such a wonderful way to put it, we rest and feast, so we can hope. There's a scene in, in C.S. Lewis's *The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe*, and Andrew Peterson um, wrote about this a while back. and And in this scene, Narnia—if you know the story—Narnia is covered in snow, and it's it, we're told it's always winter and never Christmas. In other words, the the dark. Cold bleakness of winter without the joy of Christmas, because the White Witch exercises her tyrannical power over the land. And, and at one point, the the White Witch comes across a, a group of animals who, in the story, can talk and, and do all kinds of things. A group of animals that are gathered around a table, and here in the midst of winter, they're they're feasting, they're celebrating, they're laughing they're they 're full of joy and, and in a sense, it looks ridiculous. I mean, what is there to celebrate and we 're told that they 've heard the good news. Aslan has returned See, Narnia's true king we 're told is is on the move, and so they celebrate. They know that winter is coming to an end and, and c s Lewis was unapologetic in in um, in representing you know, truths about the gospel in Christ and his stories. And and our risen king is on the move. You know, he's coming again. There's going to be a huge party when he returns. That that marriage supper of the Lamb, and um, we heard about it earlier in Isaiah twenty five. God promises to make it the feast to beat all feasts. You know, tables laden with rich food and and well aged wine And, and there's this scene of of palpable joy because death has been swallowed up by Christ's resurrection life. And so we feast now. We feast in the present, not because life is meaningless and we just want to numb ourselves to the pain. We feast now as an expression of hope that that day is coming, that that great grand feast is on its way. And Andrew Peterson says, so, because of that, gather around the table and raise a toast to the King and the coming Kingdom. God gives us time to rest. He gives us time to feast. And He gives us time to hope. Let's pray. Our God and Father, would You help us to receive Your gifts? most especially in Jesus Christ, who is our rest. Would You help us, Father, to rest all our hopes in Him, the forgiveness of sins, eternal life, resurrection from the dead, the world to come. Would You help us even now in our day-to-day lives to take Your gift, to enjoy Your gift of rest, to enjoy Your gift of food and drink and friends and family to enjoy them with. Lord, would you build our hope as we stop, as we reflect, as we eat. Would you help us, Lord, to have a a deeper trust that that day is coming, that Christ will return and we will sit down with him at table and feast in the house of Zion. It's in his name we pray. Amen.